As you're listening to this episode, let us know if you have any questions for our guest. If so, please send us a message to team at onehaas.org or join our discussion board using our Clever podcast app. You can download the app at clever.fm. Hello, and welcome to the One Haas Alumni Podcast. I'm Chris Kim, and I'm here with our host, Sean Lee. Today, we have Doug Galen, Haas alum and CEO of RippleWorks. RippleWorks brings the practical support that social ventures need to scale faster and improve more lives. Doug, welcome, and great to have you on the show. Thank you very much, Chris and Sean. Pleasure to be here. And of course, got to start with the two words, Go Bears. Go Go Bears. Bears. Yeah, Doug, it's awesome to have you on the show today. Before we get into your bio and your background, could you share a bit about RippleWorks, what it is as an organization, and what's the mission of the organization as a whole? RippleWorks started seven years ago. I had one of those moments in life, moment in the mirror, where I was working at a really cool startup, VC-backed by Kleiner and Greylock. We were building a mobile shopping app. Things were running off to the races, millions of users. And I was having a conversation with my daughter, who was turning 13, And we were talking about how to make the world a better place. And I was building a mobile shopping app. And that didn't feel consistent with my purpose in life. So I made a big career change, which was my third career, and started to explore how might I better use my time. And that's how I got to RippleWorks, how I founded RippleWorks. That's amazing. Could you share maybe a bit about what the organization does in terms of functions? And then um, how do you help social ventures to scale faster and improve more lives? Yeah. So when I started that, I kind of started a walkabout, uh, which is figuring out what I wanted to do. And there were two separate trends going on at the same time. The first was people like me were trying to figure out how to give back. I love physical labor. I'm happy to dig ditches and build houses, but that's not my skills. I have more skills than that. There are better carpenters out there than I ever will be. So that was one, a lot of people wanting to give back. The second thing that I noticed is if you are lucky enough as an entrepreneur to find product market fit, if you're a social entrepreneur and you're scaling, there's just not that many resources to help you scale, to figure out what are the challenges that you're facing. And so we created RippleWorks to be 100% focused on being the most pro-entrepreneur foundation on the planet. And that means that we focus on the top challenges that a CEO is facing at his social venture. It could be a for-profit or not-for-profit. And we are going to tackle that to the ground for the next four months so that by the time that we're done, we've not only solved the problem, but we've transferred knowledge to the organization so that they now can go never have to deal with that problem again, that they figured it out. How we do it is that we vet at RippleWorks for the best ventures in the world. We work with the CEO to figure out what's their top three challenge. So we know whatever we do will have impact on them. We staff all the project managers called venture growth managers who will sweat all the details. And then we bring in a Silicon Valley expert who has solved that problem before that the CEO is facing with scrappy resources in their career who will volunteer two to five hours a week for the next month to four months working on this problem. You as the expert get that amazing feeling of leveraging your skill set to give back. You as a venture have that problem solved and you probably formed a new friendship and advisor for life. That's amazing. Wow. First of all, that's that's just amazing. Could you share a bit about where you grew up and how you ended up at Cal for, my understanding is Cal for college. And did you have that idea growing up or is that something that came much later? 
the idea, never in a million years could I guess that I would be doing this. Not even close. And to make matters worse, I'm running a foundation that I didn't plan on start to start. And I'm teaching at Stanford at the GSB. Why? <laughs> Come on. I never <laughs> thought I would be doing that. I bleed blue and gold. Let's just get this straight. I'm still a season ticket holder. I'm still enduring all the pain at, uh, <laughs> at, at Memorial Stadium. So anyway, the, we really want the truth of how I got to Cal. So I grew up in the shadows of Stanford. I grew up in Menlo Park. My dad's hardcore alum. I've been to every big game since I was three years old as a Stanford fan. I was a ball boy for Stanford sporting events. I loved Stanford. Cal's the school I got into. You didn't apply to many schools. I couldn't afford a fancy school. You went to UC. So I got into Cal. I went to Cal. What a transition. Now I bleed at blue and gold. My dad and I play pranks on each other. We debate <laughs> the games, the whole thing. It's, all, it's a whole house divided now. That's amazing. So when you first came to Cal, what was that experience like? You were an undergrad, eventually you also came back for the business program, the MBA, but what was that like and, and how did that maybe form kind of your early understanding of what it meant to be a leader and uh, maybe to be a, an entrepreneur, maybe a, even a professional to that extent? Yeah, Cal was instrumental for me. I went to a public high school. It was a highly diverse high school. No one gives you nothing. You got to go get what you're going to get. And Cal, tough love, whatever you want to call it, I had to take control of my life. And that was priceless. And it had so many different activities. I'm a jazz musician. I played in the Cal Jazz Band. I loved that. I was really interested in government. I became an ASUC senator and was really involved in government. Got involved with the jazz festival. And so I really got to enjoy Cal. Academics were tough for me, but I hung in there. But I loved everything else that Cal had to offer. I have, to, I have to interject there. What instrument did you play? Oh, trumpet. Oh, okay. Big band, jazz, trumpet. Bring it. That's an amazing experience to be at Cal as undergrad. What did you do after school and how did you decide to come back to Cal for the MBA? Yeah. So the day after I graduated, I didn't have a job. <laughs> I was still figuring out what I wanted to do. My father worked in real estate and I met someone literally the, the next week after I graduated at a local YMCA where I worked out. And uh, he offered me a chance to become a real estate broker in commercial real estate. So that means buying and selling office buildings, apartment buildings, things of that nature. Brutal job, 100% commission. You only sell a couple of buildings a year. I'm 21 years old. Who the hell wants to sell a $3 million, $5 million piece of real estate through a 21-year-old broker? Really hard. 10 months, not one deal. And I, fortunately, I lived with a, I had a roommate who was getting his PhD at Stanford and he helped me uh, pay the bills and eat our top ramen together. In any event, I ended up closing a couple of deals and these deals pay a lot of money. So it funded my way to be able to go back to school if I wanted to. And I learned one critical lesson here. I was an intermediary. I was a broker. Someone would say jump and I would have to say how high. I didn't like that. I didn't like being in the middle. And so I wanted to go back to business school to figure out a better path and to have more control in my future versus being in the middle as a broker. Haas was arguably, maybe not even arguably, the best school in real estate in the country. So I came back with knowing I wanted to understand real estate as well as explore other things just to make sure I wasn't missing another opportunity. It's amazing. Doug, how did you, how did you think about going back to the MBA program? If you were 
starting to get some traction in the real estate side and you know making some deals you know you, you'd already put so much effort into it why go back to school and and change direction or change course i don't think i realized until you just asked the question but I do believe in moments in the mirror. You heard me talk about that at the beginning. I had a moment in the mirror when I was you know, staring at myself and talking with my daughter. I did not like the path I was on. I didn't want to be a real estate broker. I didn't feel like I was adding value. I was just managing transactions. So business school was a chance for me to reevaluate, am I on my right path? And that's 100% why I went back. It didn't matter that I was building a career. It was I was heading down a path that was not going to make me feel good. And either I subconsciously or maybe a little consciously knew that. And I don't believe in pursuing paths that aren't consistent with what gets you excited. Next natural question is how did, you know, buildings ripple works get you excited? Like how did that idea come about? So ripple works has turned out to be you know, this is my third career. My second career was building a bunch of startups and five different startups. Rippleworks is beyond anything I imagined. You know how you sometimes hear about people saying, I can't believe I get paid to do this? That's the ultimate goal for all of us is to find what we do that we could actually say, I cannot believe I get to do this for a living. First of all, Rippleworks is that. I spend every day working with entrepreneurs around the world who are actually trying to solve the world's biggest problems. No, they're not trying to build an ad network to be able to sell me something. They're actually trying to improve climate or education or healthcare or access to financial services. So the idea for Rippleworks came from two different places. Place one was I was looking for a way to give back and I didn't like the options that I saw. As I mentioned at the outset, I'm not a good carpenter. Me building houses is not my highest and best use. I had no idea what organizations I might want to help if I want to volunteer my time. I don't know who are the best social entrepreneurs in the world. I want to make sure my work makes a difference. I don't want to work on any program. I want to work on something that matters to the organization. I honestly couldn't find how I might do that. You know, there's consultants at Haas or at Stanford or at Harvard or places like that, but they're group projects. They're not necessarily, they're a little more PowerPoint than they are going in and getting under the hood and solving a problem. And I'm, not, I'm an operator at my heart. So that's what I wanted to do. I also had a lesson. You know how those lessons that make the hair on the back of your neck go up and those are the ones that stick with you the most? When I was at Shutterfly, one of those in that second career of building companies, I got a chance to create and run our foundation before we went public. How cool is that? That gave me a really nice taste of what it was like. I remember being so proud of putting all of our employees on a bus, going into the barrio in Redwood City to help a middle school with all of their challenges. Their IT systems were a mess. They had no social media. They didn't have any fundraising. And we brought our IT experts. We brought our engineers. We brought our marketers. We all came there to help the school. And this is my first event after creating the foundation. And we spent all day cleaning graffiti off the walls of their school and building a vegetable garden. And at the end of that day, the team, to their credit, said, what the heck? This is our highest and best use. And they were frustrated. And that gave me the moment that I tucked away and never forgot. There are a lot of people who would love to give back and do good if you can set it up for them. And that's how Rippleworks came about. 
was that the first time that you ran a foundation? Because uh, I know you were you mentioned, you know, postgrad and eventually, you know, you were ended up being kind of a senior executive over at Shutterfly and a couple other places, but somewhat familiar about is is another company that folks may or may not know of called Elon. And I think that's, if I'm understanding correctly, a place where you started making connections that ended up becoming what Rippleworks is today. Could you talk a little bit about that experience and how those experiences propelled you into those leadership roles to actually run the foundation as a standalone organization? Yeah, so Elon was that growing up experience. First venture, we all have those, most of us who are listening to this podcast, you've already been through a couple of companies. And if you're lucky, you had that one magic place that you worked, that you grew up professionally, personally with the people around you. That was Elon for me. And that's actually where I I was, there were two co-founders and I was employee three behind the two co-founders. One of them, Chris Larson, is my friend who is my co-founder of Rippleworks, which is a spin-out of Ripple, the blockchain company. So we can come back to that later. But Elon was my formative years of how to build a company. It set me up on how to think about how to build ventures. It built friends for life. And it built this enduring friendship with Chris Larson that led for me fulfilling my purpose at Rippleworks. Chris, did that answer your question? Or do you want me to go somewhere else as it relates to Elon? No, no, no. Definitely answers my question. I'd love to understand then if you bring us then, Doug, you know, we kind of said, hey, you went through the undergrad experience where you learned to really be scrappy. You had that experience of working in real estate then went back to the MBA program and started just growing and scaling organizations, you know, time and time again. Once you kind of got to that place where you were in Ripple and then moving on to Ripple Works, could you explain how that experience happens? Because I think for a lot of folks who listen to the podcast and who are at Haas, you know, being able to do a, a social venture, a social enterprise, do something that's both good, do well and do good, part of the ethos of a lot of folks. Could you explain that experience, how that happened and how you transitioned from Ripple, the organization into Ripple Works? Yeah, it actually was a transition from Shopkick, which was that mobile shopping app backed by Greylock and Kleiner, Reed Hoffman's on the board, we're doing amazing things. And it was that moment in the mirror as a result of my conversation with Jessica, our daughter. And that was the scariest part of the whole journey when I knew I wasn't in line with what I should be doing. On the A-list, I'm building a great company. I'm in meetings with Reed Hoffman, who I consider to be legendary. And this was the scariest part of all, which is I was going to turn my back on it. And I thought that people were going to consider me a persona non grata because I'm no longer the cool kid. That was the hardest part. And I would say... What got me over the edge to have the guts, and I I say guts in quotes because it's not that much courage. For me, I I think I almost think of it as an insecurity. I mean, it is an insecurity. I should have just gone and done it, but I had a great partner, my wife, and we talked it out and we literally had the money conversation. And for me, it was the money conversation that gave me the courage to leap. How much do we need? What do we need to pay the bills? Do we think we can do that? Can we afford to take this risk? And that was really enlightening for me because I didn't know where I was going or what I was going to do. So the step one was the money conversation. And we agreed we could make it work. Then it was, what am I going to do? And that's where I mentioned I started a walkabout and I met with VCs and I met with social impact funders. And that's where I found out that CEOs of social ventures really didn't have a lot of access 
to organizations to help the CEOs scale their social ventures. And that's something I knew about. I'd done that five times. And I knew a lot of people who could help with that. That got me the idea. But it was a lunch at Yerba Buena Gardens, sitting there, Mexican restaurant, hanging out with just me and Chris Larson. And we're talking about this company that he's building called Ripple, this blockchain thing. This is seven and a half years ago. I'm a baby part of an advisor to helping him think things through. And we're having this lunch and he says, hey, I think I should create a foundation. I don't know what to do. And let's put a bunch of cryptocurrency into it. And I started popping off with all these things that he should do. Because I'd been on this walkabout. I was wise. I was talking to VCs and foundations and the Gates Foundation and Skoll Foundation and Omidyar and all of these places. And the next thing he says is, why don't you do it? And I said, I don't want to build a nonprofit. I'm a startup person. And then he said something that was darn wise. He said, build it the way that it should be built. Don't build a nonprofit where you don't pay people right. Build it like a startup. Create that energy. Build it however you think a foundation or a nonprofit should go. Break the mold. I like that. I accepted that challenge. That was very cool. And we agreed. I went and did some thought that Ripple Works should be an independent organization whose sole focus is to make the world a better place and not necessarily focus on blockchain. Because seven and a half years ago, no one had heard of blockchain. And uh, it didn't make sense for Rippleworks to focus on blockchain. We just wanted to focus on doing good in the world. And by the way, our cryptocurrency was worthless at the time. Boy, did that change. <laughs> yes, it did. This is going to be a really dumb question, but there might be listeners out there that you know we, we have to clarify this for. What is a social venture? How do you define a social venture? How do people think about social ventures? Because you know, I had the startup, right? We have a podcasting startup that aims to really democratize podcasting. And podcasting is democratized, but success for podcasting, for podcasters, to give them a voice is not really democratized, uh, in our opinion. When you look at the you know, Apple top 100 charts, it's, you know, everybody looks the same, <laughs> right? So in many ways, it is not democratized. But is, for example, what we're building you know, a social venture? Could it be a social venture? So we'd love to hear how you guys define that. Well, there's kind of how Rippleworks defines it, and then I could all potentially comment in general how to think about it. Rippleworks defines a social venture as someone whose purpose is to make the world a better place. And so they exist because they're either trying to improve climate, trying to help with education, trying to help the poor, trying to help with healthcare or human rights. We don't care if it's a for-profit or a not-for-profit. That's just a tax code. But your purpose is to address one of these problems that exist in the world. For those of us who may not be involved in something like that, there's a lot of ways to think about social venture or social impact. Some of us may not have the luxury from a purpose standpoint. So then it can be, what's your product? Is it helping or hurting people? What resources are you using? for that product. So let me give you a couple of examples. In the news right now, Facebook. Facebook did not set out to be an evil organization. Facebook did not set out to build a platform that would impact elections. Facebook did not start, nor did Instagram, to hurt teen girls. However, it is, has an unintended impact of what it's doing. Now, as leaders, what are you going to do? And so for those of us in positions of leadership and organizations, 
when you learn of an unintended impact, what are you going to do about it? And that's a chance to have social impact right there. Tom's Shoes, wonderful organization, social impact oriented, buy a pair of Tom's, they give away a pair of Tom's. Turns out that the idea of giving away a pair of Tom's in emerging markets crushed and ruined the sneaker manufacturing market in those local markets. So here's Tom's trying to do good by giving away sneakers, and it took away the livelihood of sneaker manufacturers. So what did Tom's do? Their leadership acknowledged that and changed the program to start working with the manufacturers in those local towns. And actually, instead of giving away shoes, produce shoes there. So we all have different ways on how we can think about social good. Hey, Bitcoin uses more electricity than most countries to validate its transactions. Bitcoin didn't set out at the original to do that. Right. So we have a lot of different ways we can think about impact. I think what you just shared there is so astute because it's one of the things that have bothered me for quite a bit because there's a story that I heard. My wife's a a pediatrician and one of her colleagues, I remember at a Christmas party told me the story of how they, you know, went to the Amazonian forest and to vaccinate all these kids and to do this good. And then five years later, they came back and because they vaccinated, the kids survived. The father, you know, has to leave the forest and go work a, a job in the city just to provide for the family. And The moral of his story was, I don't know if I did good or bad, but I think that's the wrong mentality because that's where his story ends. It didn't have to end there. And that's kind of what you're saying is not just as a business, but even as an individual, all actions have consequences. Everything's a double-edged sword. But what are you continuing to do better, to do more good? So that's, thank you so much for sharing that. That's Yeah, I agree with that, Sean. And I think each of us as leaders have an opportunity to create impact. There's intended impact. Tom's gives away shoes to try to help. There's unintended impact like Bitcoin using up electricity. What do you do? Or Facebook, what do you do when you're faced with that? And all of us as leaders, whether we work at a social, quote unquote, social impact firm or not, we still have an opportunity to do good in the world. And I think that's the new bar. The new bar is to be taking into account the impact of your product or the resources that you use and to be conscious about that. And if you're not, You could end up a little bit like Facebook, which has put its head in the sand and is getting a lot of bad backlash right now and is going to end up being regulated because I don't know that while I know they didn't start out to be evil, there's evil going on in their platform and they're not aggressively enough addressing it. This is, um, <laughs> I just bring a relevant conversation from yesterday. One of my friends, Ahasi, actually messaged me and said, he's talking about a startup idea, you know, he's been sitting on and he says, I don't want to start it with the idea of how to make the most money. I want to make a difference. And I said, that's the right order. That's exactly the order you should be thinking in because money will come if you are solving problems, real problems. Back to you, Chris on what a good social impact or even a, a good organization, great organization is. From what you hear in the news or in the, in the media, it's so different. It's always, hey, let's do what feels the best or what seems like a, a good thing to do. But there's so much depth there. How does that come into play when you're looking at different organizations to select as part of RippleWorks or to partner with? would love to understand, you know, what are some of the things that you're looking at when you're looking at these social enterprises or social ventures in terms of What are they doing right? And what are some of the things that they might want to avoid as they're growing as an organization? Yeah. If if there's anyone listening to this podcast who knows me, they know that I'm about keep it simple, stupid. 
I'm always about how to make things easily understood because if you try to over quantify and overanalyze something that can't be quantified and can't be analyzed, you waste time. Impact is really hard. It's not like EPS. It's not like EBITDA. There is no one constant measure. So you have to come up with metrics that work, that are reasonable in terms of what you can actually capture. We look at the impact of a venture. And there's three elements to the impact of a venture to pick who we're going to work with. The first is the depth of impact on a human being. If we're helping a farmer in northern Nigeria, how much are we increasing their income so they can move out of extreme poverty to poverty or poverty to lower middle class? So first is depth of impact. The second is breadth of impact. How many people are we impacting with that depth? And then the third is the target population. We are interested in helping people who are struggling with life. We're not interested in helping people in the upper middle class who are trying to figure out which private tutor to go to. Wonderful problem, important to be solved. That's just not us. So we look at breadth of impact, depth of impact, target population to determine, do we believe in their impact, that they're having an impact on human beings? And then we look at the team. And do we think that they have a shot to scale their impact to help a lot of people? And that's how we pick who we work with. We work right now with about 100 organizations in 60 countries. We've grown up quite a bit over the last six and a half years. We've done about 150 of those projects that I mentioned in 60 countries, 10 to 20% in the United States, everywhere else, and then many, you know, 59 other countries. Doug, could you share maybe um, one or two of those, the organizations that you might typically partner with and help us understand what's that impact? You know, that it sounds like a huge amount of impact that these partner organizations are having. We'd love to hear if you have one or two examples there. One that comes to mind is Bob Ngona. Bob Ngona is in Nigeria, northern Nigeria. In northern Nigeria is something called the Boko Haram, the worst of the worst in terms of people killing other people, terrorists, and it, they're preying on the youth who have no hope. And it's very hard to make a living in northern Nigeria. Bob Ngona helps farmers using technology that would be attractive to the youth to dramatically increase the income of farmers. They have increased the yield of those farmers 2x over the Nigerian average. That's incredible. That is a complete change in someone's livelihood. They came to us with an idea. They were growing so fast. They had already been serving tens of thousands of farmers, and they needed to serve hundreds of thousands with the goal of serving a million farmers by 2025. And they said one of the issues that they were facing is that the key to success is the first seven days of when you plant. Do you have enough water? Do you have too much water? Did you space the seeds right? And they would send someone out to every single farm in those first seven days to look at and provide recommendations on what needed to be done. Okay, as they're approaching hundreds of thousands of farmers, that's not scalable. So the CEO had this crazy idea. He's not a technologist. He just said, what if we could take a picture, we could look at that picture, and we could advise what to do via SMS text, simple phone, there's no smartphones in northern Nigeria. And we said, we can help. And we brought in 
you know how I say our projects are, we run all and sweat all the details, and then we bring in an expert who can help create something. And so we brought in Wiley Wang. Wiley Wang, I say with a smile because he's amazing. PhD in engineering. He is, did his work in his PhD on image recognition. He is now the head of machine learning at an awesome startup called R0. And he dedicated the next four months where he designed with Bob Angona the ability to take an image, which is not that simple because every image has to have be the right scale. He had to figure out how to do that, had to digest that in an environment that doesn't always have cell coverage, and then incorporated machine learning to be able to analyze the state of that picture to advise the farmer. Bob Angona is now reaching 280,000 farmers, people who would never now hopefully become a terrorist and creating sustainable living. And they are going to hit their 1 million farmers by 2025. That's just one of the 150 projects that we get to do. Now I see how you get up every morning. (laughs) Luckiest person ever. This is very inspiring. I'm building this company, these two companies, I just say myself, a production company and uh, a tech company really reminds me to put our mission, our impact at the forefront and not lose sight of that. So you're, you're absolutely right. That is what gets me up in the morning, enabling more diverse voices around the world. And we need those voices more than ever right now. Hey, Doug, um, you know, that expert network really is in many ways part of that secret sauce, you know, as we see it for RippleWorks. How did you come up with that idea? And, and how did you come up with the like operationalizing, bringing Silicon Valley talent or experts, really rock stars in their fields to help these organizations to have that scale of impact that going from, you know, tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands, that's phenomenal in terms of growth and and scale. Well, the idea came from, remember that story I said, when I took all those Shutterfly people out to work at that school and they were pissed at me because that's the best we had to offer was clean graffiti off of walls. And I told you the stories that stick with you when the hair on the back of your neck goes up. I knew that there were people who wanted to give back. And so what was missing was a couple of key ingredients. I mean, this is good old fashioned product market fit in human centered design, which is you go talk to your users. And what the experts wanted is, I don't know what, who are the good social entrepreneurs in the world. So go vet them for me and find me the best entrepreneurs. Make sure that I'm working on a project that matters. So we only focus on a top three priority of the CEO. And I don't have time to sweat all the details. I got a busy job at Google or Airbnb or wherever. And so I need someone to hold my hand on all the details. Those are the three ingredients that went into RippleWorks so that we would attract experts. And now I think of Pablo. Pablo is a supply chain guru. We were working with an organization in in Kenya called Twiga Foods. Twiga Foods was collapsing the food chain. There's six steps from farmer to human, and it increases the cost of 20% to finally get to the eater of the food. And 20% is the difference between food security and insecurity. And Twiga Foods needed a supply chain expert who was forward thinking. There are not that many supply chain experts that are forward thinking. But then it needed a grocery supply chain expert that was forward thinking. And then it needed a supply chain expert that was forward thinking, that was in grocery, that was in perishable groceries, because that's what Twig of Foods focused on. We didn't know that we could find that person. How do you find someone like that? And then we started brainstorming. We're like, oh, wait a minute. Companies like Blue Apron, 
So we found the head of supply chain at Blue Apron, Pablo. And we called Pablo up and said, hey, how would you like to work on this project um, with Twig of Foods? And Pablo stopped in the middle of the conversation, literally, and said, wait a minute. At Blue Apron, they like and respect me, but no one really cares about supply chain. That's the stuff that goes on behind the curtain. You're saying I can be an important contributing member that may actually lead to food security for millions of people? I'm in. Of course I will help. There are so many people who want to help. We don't have an issue because we do believe the world is basically good. There are lots of people, if you give them the right platform to help, they want to help others. We've got lots of high quality experts because we put together a good program and people are basically good. Every listener walks away 10 times more hopeful <laughs> after this interview. The world is going to be fine, everybody. Doug Galen's <laughs> in the house. <laughs> oh, I really miss Chris's face now because normally you get to see him smile and laugh. <laughs> it feels like just God talking to me right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'll definitely tell you I'm not. Um, Doug, I, I had a question. Um, are you still, is RippleWorks still sourcing social ventures? And are you also taking folks to join that expert network? Or would love to kind of hear what you're thinking there and the, the near-term future for what you and the organization are thinking. Yeah, we used to launch two to three projects every month. Now we launch about five projects every month and we'll start launching seven to eight projects every month in the new year. Um, so we're always launching new projects and uh, working with new ventures that we identify in the world. Um, you want to talk about hope. If you want some hope, think about organizations in Nigeria, in Colombia, in Ghana, who have one-tenth the resources of probably every listener right now who don't have the benefit of Haas. These people are addressing our world's toughest challenges with no resources. It is so inspiring. So we're always on the lookout for the next great venture that has a shot to deliver impact at scale. We are always on the lookout for great experts. And so we welcome that should someone be looking for uh, a way to give back. In terms of a, is there a specific type of profile? You know, a lot of the folks in the Haas network might be interested in contributing or giving towards these organizations. Is there a specific profile that you're looking for or is it a broad set of backgrounds of folks who could help? Well, the cool thing is that social ventures face the same problems that we all face. It could be how to do A-B testing and marketing. It could be how to build a B2B sales force. It could be how to build a data science environment. It could be how to deploy machine learning on photographs like we did with Bob and Gona. So we have projects that hit just about every discipline. The experts that we work with are best of breed in their discipline. They probably have done work international in some way, or they're very culturally empathetic. You got to want to be a player coach. You're not coming in to solve everything yourself. You're coming in to work with the team to help them solve it, to transfer knowledge to them. But you still have to have dirt under the fingernails. You still have to be the one who's rolling up your sleeve and can solve the problem. You just also have to be able to coach it with someone else because that's the sign of success. A, solve the problem. B, help the organization be better set when you leave so that they can do it themselves. I guess to follow up on that question, can people apply to be a mentor or a, what was it called? A Experts. We call them experts. Expert. And so, sure, absolutely. Just go to the website, go to rippleworks.org, contact us and reach out. 
And if it's of interest, it's about two to five hours a week. If you get assigned to a project, a project lasts around four months. So it's like coaching Little League or um, working at your local church or whatever it might be. It's another outlet, except it's leveraging your skill set. But there's lots of different ways to help. I mean, I think the, the key is we, you know, we ha- all have an opportunity to be engaged and to make a difference. We can donate blood, we can pick up litter off the ground, or we can also volunteer our expertise. I love that you mentioned picking up litter off the ground. <laughs> when I'm walking around, I see litter, just, I just pick it up. You know, it's why walk past it? <laughs> totally. It's not getting picked up by itself. It's one of those yeah. pet peeves of mine. That's so funny, Sean. Okay, we got another thing in common here. <laughs> All right, Doug, we don't, <laughs> thank you for being so generous for your time. Chris, did you have any other questions? Just anything that uh, excites you or anything that you're looking forward to in the near future. I think as Sean mentioned, you know, we feel like you have a a ton of hope and a ton of awesome things happening, but would love to hear if there's anything specifically that just gets you excited about what might be next. I'm scared and I'm excited about climate. I think we're all waking up a little bit more every day. Every minute matters in terms of us waking up and figuring out what to do. There's more and more work being spent on it, but we got to accelerate. So I am scared but I'm also optimistic because there's some amazing brains working on it. And I, while there's so much divisiveness going on in this country and around the world that just makes me want to scream, I just hope and I know that those of us who want to make the world a better place and probably 100% of the people in the podcast listening right now do, we all can take little steps. And that has me optimistic because there's a lot of people trying to figure out how to help. On that note, Ashley will share something with our listeners. It was shared to me by Ahasi taking a class on impact investing. It's actually Paulina. She's actually one of our, our hosts <laughs> for here at Haas. But CNN has this kind of quiz thing on their website where you rank different items. Let's say like our food. What do you think will make the most impact? You rank the cars, one, two, three, four. Number one, you know, eat a plant-heavy diet, throw away less food, compost your waste, cook over clean stoves. You kind of rank it. And then they'll tell you which one actually will make the most impact on our climate. And I thought it was a really interesting thing because, surprise, we I barely know, actually. So I'll share that as well. All right. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It was a real pleasure having you with uh, Chris and I. Sean, Chris, thank you so much. Real pleasure. As you can tell, I bleed blue and gold. I love Haas and am so appreciative for what it's the platform that it's an opportunity it's given me. So we have to close with our two words. Go Bears. (laughs) Go Bears. Go Bears. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the One Haas Podcast. If you enjoyed our show today, please remember to hit that subscribe or follow button on your favorite podcast player. We'd also really appreciate you giving us a five-star rating and review. If you're looking for more content, please check out our website at haas.fm. That's spelled H-A-A-S dot F-M. There, you can subscribe to our monthly newsletter and check out some of our other Berkeley House podcasts. And until next time, go Bears. <laughs>